This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Carillo Gantner AC. Carillo is a Victorian cultural leader who has held many positions in the arts. He's also a philanthropist and previously he was cultural counsellor at the Australian Embassy in Beijing from 1985 to 1987. Carrillo joined me to talk about his new book, In Depth. It's called Dismal Diplomacy, Disposable Sovereignty, Our Problem with China and America. We discuss the recent history of Australia's very poor diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. Carrillo talks about his time as cultural counsellor at the embassy in Beijing and what he observed and learned about China's culture, language, history and politics. He examines Australia's gradual relinquishment of its sovereignty, with recent examples including the AUKUS alliance with the United States and the United Kingdom. Crucially, Carrillo talks about what can and must be done by the Albanese Labor government to reset relations with China. And you are tuned in to 3RRR-FM. This show is Uncommon Sense, and it's my great pleasure and honour to welcome onto the program Carrillo Gantner AC. Now, Carrillo has a great depth and breadth of experience in the arts, as well as many touch points with China, of which we are going to be discussing today. He was the founding director of the Playbox Theatre Company, which is now known as the Malthouse Theatre in Melbourne. He was also its artistic director between 76 and 84, as well as between 88 and 93. He was also cultural counsellor at the Australian Embassy in Beijing in 1985 all the way through to 1987 and Carrillo has served as chair of the Sydney Maya Fund, president of the Maya Foundation, chair of AsiaLink at Melbourne University, president of the Arts Centre in Melbourne and many, many other brilliant arts organisations that I, I won't get a chance to mention but ha- perhaps Carrillo will in our chat. And he was also awarded, as you might be able to tell, uh, a Companion of the Order of Australia in 2019 for services to the Performing and Visual Arts and to Australia-Asia Cultural Exchange. He has many other honorary biographical details to his name, but uh, I won't get to them all. But I do want to say just how much I'm excited to speak with Carrillo now about his new book, Dismal Diplomacy, Disposable Sovereignty, Our Problem with China and America, which has already been released through Monash University Publishing via their In the National Interest series. And I welcome Carrillo now. Hi there, Carrillo, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. After that uh, introduction, I can retire now. Yeah, well, by the sounds of it, you're already partially retired, but still doing plenty of good work, uh, including this very interesting piece of writing. Thank you. Well, it it started life as the Kidman Lecture at the University of Adelaide last year. And that was an hour lecture. It was about 6,000 words. And then Monash University Press said, if you'd add another 10,000, uh, we'll publish it in our National Interest series. So so I did that, and it was completed late last year. So the times change, and, and of course, the relationship with China changes every second day. But, but the principles involved with it are have not changed. It, it basically says that we haven't handled the China relationship well and has a few pointers on how we might handle it better. 
Well, I think it's probably an understatement in a way that we haven't um, haven't been managing it well. Just how embarrassing it is, the types of diplomacy, quote unquote, that Australian politicians especially have been deploying, because it really has been pretty much just megaphone diplomacy. Absolutely right. And it's to be fair, it's not the diplomats, it's the politicians. They discovered only in the last six or seven years, we had 40 years since the Whitlam diplomatic recognition of the People's Republic of China at the end of 1972. One of the very first major things that Gough Whitlam did when he became prime minister. And we've had 40 years of constructive, increasingly beneficial relations with China, beneficial in a whole host of aspects, but particularly, of course, commercially. Uh, Australia went through recessions that other parts of the world were suffering. We sort of cruised through them without going into recession because of the strength of the relationship. And then suddenly uh, in Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership and then accentuated in the Morrison period, the relationship turned very sour. It did so when we attached ourselves far too closely to Mr. Trump, and when he suddenly changed the American relationship with China from a sort of strategic partnership to a, uh, I've forgotten the vocabulary, but a strategic uh, adversary sort of position, we went along with him. Uh, You'll remember that Morrison was fated at a Uh, a state dinner at the White House. And uh, I would say that was the most expensive dinner that any Australian has ever had, because following that, when we too suddenly decided that China was the enemy, and we started shouting at them and pointing our finger at them and telling them what they were doing wrong in the world, it became a very expensive uh, uh, dinner when, when our you know, wine exports were suddenly cancelled, a billion dollars worth of wine, our barley. Uh, and the irony of, of these was that, of course, who who took up those contracts? Our great allies, the Americans, you know, and Canadians started selling all their barley to China uh, and their wine, as did the New Zealanders. So everyone else has sort of trampled over us in our stupidity to take up those markets that we lost. It's not been beneficial either in an, an economic or in an educational or a cultural or many dimensions to the relationship that we have we have lost yeah. out on. Well, you pointed out in the book that we do seem hung up on our national interest and our especially national security interests, but you question, well, what about our economic interests? Doesn't that get consideration, especially given this ongoing issue around trade? You know, What about the livelihoods of Australians who are affected by our exports? Yes, and a lot of that has been hidden by COVID, so it's very blurry you know, what we've lost and what we haven't lost. And of course, iron ore has continued to go from the Pilbara to China in vast quantities and at an increased price. Uh, And that has hidden the costs. But for many people around Australia, in the wine industry, in the the farming industry, in, in, in the fishing industry, Australian lobsters were suddenly cut out, but they're all having... China's not suffering... From lack of lobster, <laughs> they're all they're all uh, eating Boston Maine lobsters now. But our fishermen have have suffered 
in Tasmania and Western Australia. And we've lost uh, Chinese students. We've lost Chinese tourism. Now, yes, COVID put a, a stop to that. But we haven't gone out of our way to uh, bring them back again. And the Chinese government is discouraging them from coming here because they say, you know, this is not no longer a welcoming country for for Chinese students. Yeah. Other countries who have a relationship with China and a, a multifaceted one like we do, they have continued to have that relationship. Uh, even though the issues that we say we're concerned about, whether they're human rights, uh, whether they're the South China Sea, whether it's COVID and Wuhan, whatever it is, they managed to continue to have a relationship. They haven't had all ministerial contacts shut down. They haven't had trade sanctions. So what are they doing that we're not doing? Or rather, what are we doing that they're not doing? It's behaving as I say in the book, I call us the American shoeshine boy in the South Pacific. I mean, we have been hectoring the Chinese. We've been telling them what's wrong with their system, what's wrong with their behavior, not trying to to think as you do in any relationship, what does the other person want? How can we meet that without sacrificing our own personal values? And we don't have to. New Zealand hasn't, Japan hasn't, Singapore hasn't, Indonesia hasn't. All of these countries manage their relationship with China in a much more equitable manner. Now, that doesn't mean they agree with everything China does, because clearly we don't. But they don't shout at them in public. A lot of what's happened in recent years has been done for domestic consumption. The government decided that there were votes to be had in standing up for our values and uh, the sort of thing that Morrison said, we are not going to be uh, bullied by the Chinese. You can say the same thing, but you can do it diplomatically and quietly behind the scenes rather than doing it through the Australian media and telling the Chinese what's wrong with them. And we've made, I think, futile gestures, not allowing our diplomats to go to the Winter Games. What did that achieve? didn't stop the Games. It didn't help Australia. Yes, you can say we don't want ministerial visits if you want to, but, but our diplomats in Beijing, it's their job to understand what's happening in China. And the Winter Games are an important uh, international event. Uh, the fact that you know, the Australian ambassador, Graham Fletcher, was not allowed to go and watch a ski race, uh, didn't really achieve anything except that uh, the government here somehow thought it would would score points. Curiously, or rather ironically, in, in the last election, of course, what happened was that the Chinese Australian community, of which there are probably 1.3 or 4 million now, they turned away from the government. Uh, because they were being attacked both uh, verbally and occasionally in in person and criticized uh, for having so-called divided loyalties, which is absolute rubbish. And they turned off the government. So it, it backfired. But I'm sure a lot of it was was done at the time for what they thought was 
political gain in Australia. Yes, and you point out it was not just for domestic consumption, as in the electorate, but also it was about jockeying for leadership positions. And yes, I think I think a lot of it, a lot of it was was. I mean, you have to remember that that Morrison only had a one seat majority. Yep. Uh, and within that majority, he was dependent on the Nationals, and and the far right of the Nationals gets a bit loony at times. So he couldn't afford to lose one of them. So whenever Dutton said something outrageous and and thoroughly objectionable in my view, you know, like we need to prepare for war with China, I mean, stupid stuff, stupid stuff. Morrison had to either say something even one step further, you know, to the right, or at least show that he was equally, uh, you know, hairy-chested and, and gung-ho. Otherwise, he, would, he could have lost one or two votes in the nationals, and that would have been his majority as leader and then effectively the, the government's majority. And then even, even Josh Frydenberg got in on the act. Uh, we signed the free trade agreement with China in 2015. That's not very long ago. And at the time, this was the government's you know, greatest achievement, and it was going to build on our relationship with China and, and lead to continuing Australian prosperity. And yet, when that was tested a couple of years later, or a few years later, three years later, by the Chinese dairy company, Mengnio, which is a publicly listed company listed in, on the Chinese stock market and in Hong Kong, they wanted to buy the dairy assets of a that were owned by a Japanese company. And the Foreign Investment Review Board said that's perfectly all right. There's no strategic interest involved here. And so they cleared it and, and the security people cleared it. But Frydenberg blocked it on what he said were national security grounds, which was absolute rubbish. A, it was, it was in contradiction to the terms of the free trade agreement, which we had signed. But B, I think it was it was Josh trying to show his hairy chest um, and that I can be strong on China too, chasing those illusory votes, whether they were in outback Queensland or in wherever. It just made made us foolish, I think, and and it actually contradicted our stated values of being a free trade country. Yeah. And I mean, you say you, you reference the, the China Free Trade Agreement. I mean, it does actually feel like a world away uh, such a long time ago, given where we are currently at in our relationship with China. And it made me think just how far it must seem to you, um, how far, how many worlds away is it when you were over in China and first engaging with China through the arts? That must be, you know, almost feel like it's Two millennia well, I first away. went to China in, in February 77, and then I took the first Australian theatre group back there in 78, and then in 79, we presented the Chinese puppet company at the Playbox Theatre, and because that was so successful, we were asked to tour the Nanjing Acrobatic Troupe in 1980, which we did nationally, and then the Jiangsu Peking Opera Group. Uh, those two were both from Jiangsu Province, Nanjing was the capital of Jiangsu, because Victoria and Jiangsu had the first of the sister state relationships that a liberal premier, Dick Hamer, Sir Rupert Hamer, had established. 
um, because he could see the potential in all its dimensions of having good relations with China. Yes, and then I went myself in the mid-80s as cultural counselor at the embassy. It is uh, light years away. And and it was still going well until about 2017 when suddenly it all it all fell in a heap uh, and if you if you look at the chronology it's us following donald trump down a very deep wombat hole um, and we now have to work out how to get ourselves out of there as quickly but Without, I mean, I'm sure Dutton is waiting to pounce the moment the Labour government does something that says, well, let's improve the relationship. He'll say appeasement, appeasement, and, and you know, panda huggers, as I was called once in that Clive Hamilton book. Why? Because I'd supported the Chinese National Ballet to come to Australia. Terrible. It got stupid. Um, and destructive, destructive of our economic interest, of people's jobs in Australia, of our uh, relationships with our region. I mean, China is the biggest power in our region, and it's not going to go away just because we don't happen to think that their form of government is suitable for us. But, But what we have to do is learn how to be respectful to the power that they have, because they are a superpower now. I mean, had Mr. Dutton taken us to war with China, it would have been over in about 30 seconds. Um, you know, it just seemed just seemed such a sort of obscenely comical almost gesture, but he seemed to think that that, that would play well in the Australian electorate. Uh, but if people thought about it for a minute, they would have realised it was stupid. Now, big powers behave badly. We should get used to that. The Americans have behaved appallingly, yeah. you know, since they've been a superpower. They've taken us to several wars that I think Australia should not have been in. Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. They're not our wars. And frankly, neither is Taiwan. And if I can remind your listeners that in 1972, when Gough did recognize the People's Republic. Gough recognized that Taiwan was a part of China. We have a one China policy. So why would we think of going to war in contradiction of our own policy? It'd be like the Chinese saying, well, the Tasmanians don't like uh, the Australian government and they want to rule themselves differently. So we'll go in to defend the Tasmanians uh, against the Australian government. It's just not on. It's yeah. not legal. It's not correct. And it's it contradicts our own government's position. Now, no Australian government since Gough in 72 has renounced the one China policy that we signed up to. No one has said we don't accept that anymore. Why? Because it's not in our national interest to do so. Now, it doesn't mean we agree with everything the People's Republic of China does. It doesn't mean that we want that particular form of government. But it does mean that we have to respect the fact that that's the kind of government that China has chosen for itself. And our shouting at them isn't going to change that. 
some of the the points you make, especially about your time living in Beijing and getting to know the Chinese people through their culture, language, history, politics, you know, these areas you said were very close to political ideology and that you really, in your role at the embassy in Beijing, you know, you picked up on some of the changes in politics by taking note of what was happening in the cultural sphere and you compare culture in China to Australia saying that perhaps in Australia many people still seem to think culture is what you do on a Saturday night but it was really quite striking to me as someone who is fairly aware of Chinese culture, language and history. To me, this is a kind of obvious statement, but I think to others who don't have that experience, perhaps it isn't. And so that section in in the essay in your book about China and just how crucial its history, culture and, and language is to understanding and providing a foundation of respect between nations. I feel that that is something that's just so grossly missing now. And I wonder, do you think it was present then? Was the way that Australia conducted themselves, you know, the ambassadors, cultural counsellors like yourself, was there a different approach to China and trying to understand them and their difference in an open-minded, empathetic way? By and large, the professional diplomatic staff that I've dealt with over 30, 40 years have understood that because they go to China, they want to be posted in China, they find it an enthralling country with a with a rich, very rich history. I mean, we think of English history and all the kings and queens and changes from the Tudors to the Spencers to the Windsors, and the Chinese have gone through the same sort of cycles of of dynasties that generally last a few hundred years. All of that is is of fascination to the professional diplomats who are there. Now, I think on the street in Australia, that stuff, uh, if I can call it that, is not of of interest. and, And even to our political class, very few of them are genuinely interested in China. They see the relationship in transactional terms. How many million tons of iron ore did we sell? How many, uh, you know, whatevers uh, do we buy? How many widgets do we buy? What is the trade balance? They don't think about China's history. They certainly don't think about the complexity of its language, of its rich art scene in performing arts, in classical painting, in the theatre, which I was always interested in. And they don't think of the, the subtleties of that. And, and the, I mean, they don't, they don't care. And they don't have to, but they have to recognise that the Chinese people, uh, even if they don't like the, the Chinese government, it doesn't mean that the Chinese people always like the Chinese government, just as we don't always like our government, uh, as we've just shown. And yet we have to, I think, be respectful and interested in the differences. We do underestimate culture in this country. I mean, our politicians tend to think of the arts, as I call it, you know, what you do on Saturday night, as either about celebrity, uh, whether it's Kate Blanchett or whatever the other you know movie star of the moment may be, 
or about sort of some left-wing cabal of potsterers and that is peripheral. And yet, as the pandemic proved, when people were locked up in their homes, what did they turn to? They turned to the arts. They turned to music. They turned to Netflix telling stories. They turned to reading and books and culture. They turned to all the aspects of our culture that enrich their lives and, and basically that keep us sane and that, and that teach us about ourselves, both individually, how do I live, how do I behave, how do I interact with my, my spouse and my children and my community and my wider society. That's what the arts do. And we knew that in the pandemic, but it tends not to be reflected in how our political class behave. And they also don't think of the extraordinary economic impact that the arts and culture have in this country, let alone China, through not just the, you know, the publishing industry or the television industry or the movie industry, but in terms of of fashion. Fashion is, is an aspect of cultural development. Sport is an aspect of our Australian culture. I mean, I used to say I was the Minister for Sport at our embassy because sport is a, is a very strong part of the Australian cultural mix. And understanding who we are and telling our own stories rather than just watching international, you know, American blockbusters and and uh, soap operas uh, is really important because we're we're a country of migrants. We're building our own culture, uh, which has this extraordinary rich base of indigenous history and culture on which we're all standing. And how we bring those things together is not only a, a rich emotional and historical source of our being, but it also has a profound economic impact on everything we do. Design is another aspect. And so I felt myself fortunate because I was learning all the time in China that all those aspects and language, the, the complexities of their language. My father-in-law was a scholar and a writer and a playwright. I was struggling to know a thousand Chinese characters when I was there, and I've forgotten 995 of them uh, since I was living there and trying to force myself to come to grips with this. But he probably knew 30 or 40,000 characters and long form characters, so that they're pictograms where, in one character that might have 16 or 18 brush strokes, you know, you're conveying a whole world of meaning that that we might take, you know, 10 words to describe. And the other thing and the point I make is that culture in China is very close to ideology. That's why the Chinese treat their culture with such respect, because they know that artists have a very powerful voice and that they can influence a wider community, both directly uh, and indirectly through the stories they tell and the lifestyle they lead. So I always say that uh, censorship of the arts in China, which, which happens quite strongly, and particularly at the moment under the current regime, uh, you know, it's very tightly controlled. It acknowledges that the arts actually have a real power in the society uh, that we tend not to give them here. We, we think of them as peripheral. 
and expendable. So, so po- uh, politicians don't, in my view, give the arts the respect that they are due and, and of course, the financial support. Yeah. And you point out as well in this essay that essentially the links that were established between China and Australia, especially the cultural links, the intellectual links between universities and research centres, these have all been very much undermined by the previous Morrison government. For example, you point out their defunding and removal of the tax-deductible gift recipient status of independent think tank China Matters. I actually, you know, thought they had kind of gone really quiet and now I know why. It, it's bizarre. They yeah. they didn't want alternative voices. I mean, we criticised the Chinese for stifling uh, independent voices, but we were doing it here. We were putting pressure on our academics in the universities not to publish material that, that wasn't in line with our own government's sort of official position. It's outrageous. You mentioned there about respect and China's great respect for culture and obviously its ties to politics and ideology. One thing that you also point out, uh, especially around the theme of respect, is that what we seem not to understand, and this is a quote from you, is China's demand for respect as a necessary basis for reciprocal and productive cooperation. That's something which it seems like you're stating the bleeding obvious, but it's something that has been entirely missing, as you've pointed out, from about 2017 in, in the most overt fashion um, under the Morrison government and obviously Turnbull as well. And so we've seen this huge deterioration of respect. It means there's, I guess, a bit of a loss of face for the Chinese if they try and reach out and not get an outcome that is desirable to them. And we have actually seen the new Chinese ambassador to Australia when he came over to Australia only recently when Morrison was still prime minister, you know, extend the olive branch, say, let's have a meeting. I want to try and reset relations. And Scott Morrison refused to meet. That was bizarre. Not bizarre. It was obscene. I mean, the ambassador from one of the great powers on earth wants to have a meeting with our prime minister. It's our prime minister's responsibility to meet him. The fact that he meets him doesn't mean that we agree with everything that China does. I mean, Australians aren't stupid. They read that for a sort of puffed up chest sort of bit of, it was bizarre. So, I mean, yes, the ambassador came. If you remember the minister, the number two in the Chinese embassy, people didn't agree with everything he said, but he he did the National Press Club. He went on Q&A to try and make these points that China was looking to reset the relationship. But he was sort of howled down by a chorus of our politicians in a very unconstructive, actively destructive way. The Chinese premier, the number two in the Chinese sort of government system, Li Keqiang, uh, he sent a very conciliatory note to the new prime minister, Albanese, when his election was confirmed as prime minister. I think. The new government obviously doesn't want to be seen to be falling over itself to to be sweet with China again. But I think an opportunity has already been missed by the new government not to acknowledge 
at least the sort of nature of the the overture from China, and then address it quietly through our ambassador in Beijing, rather than to say, you know, again, talk about Australian sovereignty. I can't remember Albanese's exact words, but they weren't, mm. he, he didn't want to be attacked immediately, I think, by Dutton and others on the conservative side for appearing to appease China to to give in because there's been five years now where the media, particularly the Murdoch press, but not only the Murdoch press, have been writing about China in negative terms. They don't even say the Chinese government, which it is. They talk about the communist government every time. If every time the Chinese wrote about this Australian government and they called it you know, the Liberal National Coalition government, we'd think that was pretty odd. Well, the Chinese think it's pretty odd and, and offensive, I think, just constantly to be named as, as the communist, the communist, the, the communist conspiracy, the communist uh, whatever. We just need to moderate our, la- our language. And as I said, Perhaps the very best things that some of our politicians could do is simply to shut up and leave it to the professionals to have the conversations quietly. I do think that our new foreign minister, Penny Wong, is a cut above her predecessor. I think she will be able to handle the nuance of language that's required in dealing with China much better. And I think she will. So although I think the first opportunity was missed to respond to the uh, Chinese Premier's overtures, I think we will find that in the months ahead, uh, it will improve and and they will find a way to, to start direct discussions at ministerial level again. I, I mean, I know that Graham Fletcher and his predecessor, Jan Adams, has our ambassadors in Beijing have been denied access at senior ministerial level, which is a a terrible uh, position for us to be in. But while we'd like to say, or lots of our politicians like to say, it's all China's fault and China's changed, we have also changed and it is equally our fault. And that's really the point of the book that I was trying to make, that we say China under Xi Jinping has changed since, say, Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao before him. But if you think we've changed since, not not just since Goff, but since Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, and for that matter, Malcolm Fraser, who traveled to China and was mm. very respectful, which is not to say that Malcolm thought that, that the Chinese system was, a, was one he wanted to have here. But we have to learn that just because we don't agree with someone doesn't mean it's appropriate to shout at them. Yeah, I do certainly agree that that was a missed opportunity with the Chinese Premier, Li Keqiang. And I did see that after that letter that was sent to Anthony Albanese, apparently through the Chinese state media network, Xinhua News, there's been a point to convey to Australia that China hopes that the 50th anniversary of Gough Whitlam's diplomatic recognition of China might be a kind of crucial moment to actually strengthen the relationship again, hopefully have a reset 
Do you think that that has any likelihood? I mean, the fact that we've already seen three, four, five, you know, moments of different uh, people representing the Chinese government reaching out to the Australian government, not only the Morrison, but also Albanese. Like, surely that is a a very strong sign. It's a very strong sign, Amy. You're absolutely right. And the 50th anniversary, which comes up actually at the end of this year, is a perfect moment to do something visible and symbolic and um, positive. I've maintained relationships with friends in China, including at the Ministry of Culture, and I've been saying for the last couple of years that this anniversary is coming up and we need to think how it can be marked. They have had their hands tied, you know, that sort of Australia is in bad odor at the moment and have said, we, you know, there's not much we can do at the moment until the bigger issue is resolved, but they're waiting for it to be resolved. They want it to be resolved. It's in their interests for it to be resolved as it's in ours. And I hope whether it's a prime ministerial visit, whether it is some less political but no less visible sort of third track conversation, uh, I'm beginning to have discussions here now about what we might do next year to reopen the very active cultural exchange programs that we've had with China over the last 10, 20, 30 years with two-way flow of, of artists and writers and journalists, you know, to see what we can get going again, because it's in our, it's in our own interest for it to happen. It's not, yeah. it's not rocket science. No, it certainly isn't rocket science. And one thing I recall you saying actually in a conversation with Linda Javen was you were talking about and reflecting on the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and its perception of itself and its particular role as a department. And you were pointing out that their view of themselves was that they're not a policy department, but more of a services delivery department, which to anyone who understands DFAT's role, I would have thought, you know, it's a bit jarring to hear that because usually the assumption is you have all these policy boffins working hard at their desks, coming up with strategic um, ideas of how to engage with different countries. So I wondered, do you think that that's still the case? And is there room then to change um, the public service and to try and shift some of the bureaucracy in favour of more engagement and more of a focus on policy and less on so-called service delivery? The previous secretary of the department was Frances Adamson, who's now the governor Mm. in South Australia. And she had before that been our ambassador in Beijing and a very capable and successful one. Uh, Her successor appointed by the Morrison government was someone with, a, I understand, a military background and a Pentecostal background who had no experience in the Department of Foreign Affairs and clearly had been put there to fulfill the whims of the previous prime minister. It's not for me to determine appointments in the public service, but my guess would be that Uh, their days as Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs will be numbered with the new foreign minister, and that the department will begin to once again be positioned as as very much a policy department. 
it's not just there to provide consular services to Australians who are uh, sick or arrested or whatever when they're traveling overseas. It is there to advise the government in a very sophisticated and informed manner how they might best improve relationships for our national advantage. That's their job. And we've we've had very, very good diplomats in that role in Beijing for a long time, very experienced people, usually with high language skills and a career interest in China and, and uh, uh, Asia and Australia's relationship with them. And we need to go back to that. I personally think, and this is this is a personal view, that when they combine the Department of Trade with the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, into the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, I think that has been a long-term error because the symbolism of that has made the department much more transactional and less analytical. Uh, and I think that's a loss. I think we have lost some of the really fine analysts who used to be in the department. They were policy wonks. They mm. they read and thought and wrote, but that was sort of considered unproductive. Um, in fact, the good ones were very productive because they helped our politicians understand how they could manage the relationship better. When everything is just down to what are we selling and what are we buying, uh, it changes the nature of the relationship. So I would like to see more emphasis again on analysis and and the sort of intellectual grunt of the department, uh, which certainly, I mean, in the old days, foreign affairs and treasury were the two big policy departments in the government. And I think we managed our external relations better when that was so. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And one thing I wanted to focus on before we finish up was about this idea of sovereignty. It's just a word that's bandied about willy-nilly by pretty much every politician and national interest is another phrase that seems to get used or overused. But you talk about sovereignty in an interesting way because you say our sovereignty is indeed threatened, but not by an aggressive China. Rather, we ourselves have given it away to the United States. Gradually since World War II, but more recently in a rush with the Australia-United States ministerial consultations in Washington over the past decade and, of course, the September 2021 AUKUS Pact, which centred on a nuclear submarine deal, of which I'm sure we're all familiar I just wanted to focus on AUKUS and Australia's relinquishing of sovereignty in such a substantial way under AUKUS, because obviously this is some kind of signal towards China that, oh, we need to contain you now. And as Paul Keating pointed out at the National Press Club, the submarines we have at the moment are for defence, not offence. And if we start integrating ourselves into the US military capability even more than we already are, we really are signing ourselves up for conflict. And that's something you also say. So I just wondered if you could reflect on AUKUS and I guess the signal that that is sending not only to China, but also to the rest of the world and ourselves. AUKUS, uh, which came out of the blue sort of for everyone, sent a whole range of signals. One is that somehow tying ourselves back to the 
19th and 20th century Anglosphere of the United States and Great Britain was appropriate and relevant in an Asia-Pacific century. And that sent very weird signals across our region. The fact that we did it without informing our nearest neighbor and perhaps most important regional neighbor, Indonesia, that suddenly, oh, by the way, guys, we're going to have nuclear submarines cruising your waters. That was very badly managed. The, 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 the management of the French relationship, I don't need to uh, linger on. You know, I don't, I don't think I know. You know, that was <laughs> a catastrophe in terms of uh, our relationship with Western Europe, because with Macron, the head of the European Union, and us wanting a a free trade deal there, that, you know, is not in our economic interest. The French submarines were designed as a defensive submarine to protect our trade routes around Australia. To sign up for a, for a nuclear submarine, the benefit of which is that it can travel long distances in secrecy underwater and is designed really to be a, an additional squadron in support of the Americans in containing China was a very, from the Chinese perspective, an extraordinarily uh, brutal and, I think, wrong decision. Now, the government has tried to, to say it we're protecting our sovereignty. But in fact, we've signed up for a, a submarine that's nuclear powered when we have no nuclear industry. I mean, the way Morrison talked about it was so, uh, uh, you know, we're just basically going to buy the shell and the Americans will come and dump the engine in. We don't have to know how it works and they won't tell us. And anyway, they'll be they'll be up there in the South China Sea protecting us. I mean, that to me was appalling. It said that that we too want to be part of the American containment of China, that we we want to uh, be part of preventing China's quite proper aspirations to be a major regional power and, and ultimately to be a major world power, that we're not interested in, in the defense of Australia. We're signing up for an offensive role in an American containment and potential war with China. To me, that sent all the wrong signals Paul Keating, whom you mentioned, he said years ago, and I, it's still fundamentally true, I think, he said, we have to define our defense not, not against Asia, but within Asia, and particularly Southeast Asia. Uh, I mean, if I were God and could, could determine these things, I would be having Australia to work as hard as we could on qualifying to join ASEAN, because our, our, you look at a map and you look at the Indonesian archipelago, it is a, a brilliant umbrella across the north of Australia. That's our greatest security. So our security is to be found in Asia, not against Asia. So I, I think the AUKUS agreement has not assisted us in that regard. It said we're going to bypass Southeast Asia and we're going to have these long-range submarines that, that are designed to block China's own trade routes coming out through the South China Sea. And, and the Chinese, remember, are dependent on their sea trade because they're the, the world's major exporter. 
they need that trade, you know, even more than we do. But the Americans like to think they can block that. Even in the, in the last couple of days, there's been criticism of China not attacking, but menacing an Australian spy plane off the coast of China. Why are we flying Australian spy planes off the coast of China? And who are we doing it for? I don't think Canberra's learning much, but the Americans might be. When the Chinese Navy had a ship in international waters, you'll remember Dutton talked about their aggressive action in having a ship in international waters. And yet we we get our knickers in a knot when the Chinese express displeasure about an Australian spy plane off the coast of China. Yes, it was in off the 12-mile zone, but I'm not sure what we're doing there and why we need to be there. So that's extending the AUKUS mm. discussion out. I had an uncle who died last year who, who was in the Australian Navy in the Second World War, and... Uh, he said in his mid-90s, he said, well, the good thing about AUKUS and, and the 40-year timeline to get these submarines is that it basically means we will never have a nuclear submarine because by the time we get them, you have to realize that underwater drones, unmanned drones will be patrolling the seas. And this thing that we, we tout as our great uh, weapon uh, of defense or offense will be irrelevant and and outmoded by the time we get it. So he said, I think of it as good news. It means we're never going to have a nuclear submarine. Um, that was a, an unusual point of view. But there's some truth in, in it, I think, that by in 40 years' time, uh, I mean, while Dutton and Morrison were saying that the Chinese threat is immediate and tomorrow and, you know, our sovereignty is threatened, our defense uh, against it was 40 years away. I mean, it was a sort of nonsense announcement. And it was announced in a big hurry that suggested it was done again for domestic political purposes because they hadn't decided, do they want the American nuclear submarine? Do they want the British nuclear submarine? You know, whose who's engine, whose weapons, whose whatever in it, oh, we'll, we'll take the next 18 months to think about that, uh, let alone how we're going to pay for it. Yes, and only informed labour at the 11th hour as well. And only informed labour at the 11th hour, yes. So there were so many things that, that said this smells to me. And I don't know what Britain thinks it's doing in the Pacific, you know, in the 21st century, it doesn't have a presence here, whereas the French, in fact, do. The French have a, a big presence uh, in New Caledonia. They've had, of course, a colonial history in Vietnam and, and other Tahiti and were a much more, much more a Pacific power than the British have been. But suddenly, Boris, you know, we thought it looked good if, if we brought him in on the act. It made it look more plausible. I think the whole AUKUS thing will, will probably fall apart over time. Yeah, well, I hope so. Yes. Um, that would be amazing. I love that 
explanation from your family member who's passed away because, uh, yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. Just finally, now, Carillo, you just had one great line. Well, you have many great lines, actually, because I spent my life nodding throughout your whole book. But there was one that stuck out to me, and it's true, I think, especially in the context that you were writing it, which was in the, the Morrison government during our great diplomatic freeze, of which we still are semi under it. Yeah. And you say, frankly, China has largely ceased to care about Australia. Politically, we have made ourselves irrelevant. Now, the fact that, as we've already referenced in this conversation, that China has shown an ounce of caring again is kind of miraculous, given that they truly did seem to not care at all during this many years long diplomatic freeze and these um, trade export bans and barriers to Australian trade. This is something that I think Australia seems to get perhaps confused by is that they think that because we talk about China all the time, that China thinks about us all the time. Um, and I guess... And they don't. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> I just wondered if you could comment on that because it's so annoying that I, yes. you know, to me as well, that everyone thinks that China's hung up on us. Yeah, no, they're not. And, and uh, we think we're a lot more powerful than we are. We're a middle power and we should behave like one. China represents 50% of the value of Australia's external trade, 50%. That's a hell of a lot. And it's several times larger than you know, the, the next trading partners. Australia represents less than 5% of China's external trade. So, I mean, the government kept telling Australian companies to replace their China trade and kept telling Australian universities to replace their Chinese students uh, as though this could be done overnight when, when it's 50% of the market. If China lo lost 100% of the Australian trade, and it won't because of iron ore, you know, 5% is a lot easier to replace than 50%. And they are building their connections across Central Asia to the Middle East and ultimately to Western Europe through the so-called Belt and Road, through high-speed rail, which is being built across the stands, and I think will go through, probably through Afghanistan on the way to Istanbul. In a few years, you'll be able to get on a high-speed train out of Beijing and go through to the Mediterranean. We are not central to their thinking. I think the Chinese would like us to go back to the sort of role that we had before about 2017, where we said America is our strategic ally and China is our trading partner. We will deal in a more balanced way with both of you. We will not let ourselves be manipulated by either side. We've invested at horrible cost in America's wars that we shouldn't have, and the Chinese would probably like to see us not doing that anymore. They would like us to, to occupy a more neutral position, even if not in formal political neutrality, but to go back into a more balanced relationship with both of them. And frankly, so would I, uh, because it's in our national interest that we should do so. As I said at the beginning of this, China is the major regional power in the Asia Pacific. We have to learn to live with them. We don't have to like everything they do. I'll say that again. We can disagree and we can criticize them. 
other governments do. The Japanese, who have a, a much more brutal and tough history with China than we do, you know, they get on with them. And we have to learn to do so by speaking more quietly and diplomatically, by just paying a bit more attention and not doing everything that the Americans tell us to do. Uh, we don't have to accept the American position on everything, nor do we have to do their dirty work in the Pacific and be the sort of that unfortunate John Howard phrase, be the deputy sheriff in our part of the world. It's not a role that is conducive to a, a strong, secure and, and economically powerful Australia. And I know that the Chinese Australians here will benefit from better relations, given that, as you point out, they've become the collateral damage in all of this. So I thank you so much for your time today, Carrillo. It's been really illuminating. And I hope that people can pick up your book, which I think is essential reading. It's called Dismal Diplomacy, Disposable Sovereignty, Our Problem with China and America, and it's out through Monash University Publishing. Thank you again, Carrillo. I really appreciate your Thank time Thank you, today. Amy. I've enjoyed the conversation. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.